Creating your own reality. Is it possible for me? I am Jennifer Cahill, the Consciousness Architect, and I am here to tell you that it's not only possible, it's closer than you might think. Welcome to the show. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today for another conversation at the intersection of cutting-edge science and spirituality. I am your host, Jennifer K. Hill, co-founder of om-heals.com, and today we have with us Dr. Deepak Chopra and Professor Don Hoffman for a special conversation called, What is Real, Really? The New Frontier of Consciousness, Exploring Vedantic and Scientific Perspectives. Deepak Chopra, MD, is founder of the Chopra Foundation, a nonprofit entity for research on well being and humanitarianism, as well as Chopra Global, a modern day health company at the intersection of science and spirituality. Chopra is a world renowned pioneer in integrative medicine and personal transformation. He has authored over 91 books, including his most recent book, Abundance. This book provides an enlightenment guide, an enlightening guide to success, fulfillment, wholeness, and plenty, offering practical advice on how to cultivate a sense of abundance in times of fear and insecurity. We also have with us today Donald Hoffman. Don received his PhD from MIT and is a professor emeritus of cognitive sciences at the University of California, Irvine. He has authored 120 scientific papers and three books, including The Case Against Reality, Why Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes, which we will be discussing today. He received several awards, including the Distinguished Scientific Award of the American Psychological Association for Early Career Research as well as the Rustam Roy Award from the Chopra Foundation and the Trolland Research Award of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. His writing and work has appeared in Scientific American, New Scientist, LA Review of Books and Edge, and his work has also been featured in Wired, Quanta, The Atlantic, National Public Radio, Discover Magazine, and he was also featured in Through the Wormhole with Morgan Freeman. He has a TED Talk titled, Do We See Reality As It Is? As you may have joined us before for some of our earlier episodes, we've been exploring the meaning of consciousness, drawing from some of Deepak's 91 plus books that he's written, as well as Don's book, The Case Against Reality, Why Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes. Deepak, I thought today perhaps that you could start us off by explaining to us the Vedantic perspective on what pure consciousness means, and then perhaps we can have Don explain it from a more scientific perspective. Okay, so that's a good question, Jen. Let me start by sharing with you. There are three traditions that are very closely related in the Eastern wisdom traditions, uh, particularly the ones that come from India. So the first is Vedanta, mm -hmm. which is, um, uh, I would say, consciousness only monism. It holds that only consciousness exists. And everything else is actually an appearance in consciousness that is also consciousness. 
but it looks different because consciousness by itself has no form. So that's in Vedanta, but it's also in a whole discipline called Kashmir Shaivism, which goes back about a thousand years. And that uh, the exponent of that was somebody called Abhinava Gupta, who influenced um, the export of non-dual thinking into Nepal, and that became the Nepalese version of uh, Buddhism as well. So if you go in deep into the literature of Vedanta, Kashmir Shaivism, Tantra, uh, you see all these philosophies, uh, which are consciousness only monism, matter only monism, and then dualism, mind and matter, two different things. Now, even though Vedanta talks about dualism, it says that dualism is an experience, but it's not the reality. So let me explain uh, how that works in, in these traditions. The consciousness is the ground of all experience. I'll repeat that very carefully. Consciousness is the ground of all experience. So consciousness is that in which all experience occurs. All experience is known, but also out of which all experience is made. That third part is very important. So consciousness is in which all experience occurs. The experience of this book is happening in consciousness. The experience of this hand is happening in consciousness. Um, where else could it be happening? It's not happening in the brain because uh, there's no experience in the brain. There are no colors in the brain. There are no forms in the brain. There are no shapes in the brain. There's no sound in the brain. Nothing that we can call experience can actually be seen or even experienced in the brain. What we find in the brain are what are called neural correlates of experience, but even those are an experience. Somebody has to experience the neural correlates of experience to call them neural correlates. <laughs> so even the brain is an experience in consciousness. So once again, consciousness is that in which all experience occurs, all experience is known, out of which all experience is made. So you say, well, how is the experience of this iPhone or is this book or this uh, hand made out of consciousness? Well, the only way I can know this phone or this watch or this hand or this body is through experiencing it in an alchemy of five fluctuations of consciousness, sound, touch, sight, taste, and smell. So the activity of hearing is actually a modulation of consciousness. The activity of seeing is a modulation of consciousness. Consciousness knows itself as this color. Consciousness knows itself as this form. Consciousness knows itself as this sensation. Consciousness knows itself as this sound, this taste, and this smell. But then consciousness, once it knows itself as this perception, but even that is misleading because before I can call this a book, before I can call this a phone, before I can call this a watch or a hand, all it is is qualia. Qualia meaning um, English word, quality of awareness, but in the Sanskrit, qualia are fluctuations of consciousness. The dense fluctuations, 
lower frequency fluctuations of consciousness. And they're all, by the way, called vrittis or shaktis. So it's also a name for the divine feminine. Pure consciousness, the divine masculine. But as it fluctuates, the low frequency fluctuations become what we call the five senses and their qualia. Sounds, shapes, colors, forms, tastes, smells, textures. But then consciousness also fluctuates at higher frequencies, uh, which are called mind and intellect and ego in the biological organism that we're speaking of as the human being. So the high frequency fluctuations are called the subtle body, which is uh, mind, intellect, and ego. The low frequency fluctuations are called perceptions or qualia that we associate with the five senses. So what is fluctuation? Fluctuating pure consciousness. And that pure consciousness doesn't by itself has any attributes. It's just a possibility field. It's formless. And it has no edges or defined edges. It's inconceivable because it's not in space-time. <clears throat> its fluctuations create the experience of space-time, but even the processing of space-time is happening in consciousness. And in fact, the Vedanta says this infinite space of consciousness is not an empty void. It's also eternal time. So infinite space and eternal time, but not time as an endless duration, but as in timelessness. So outside of time and beyond time. And that when we um, give meaning to qualia, when we give meaning to colors, shapes and forms visually, that becomes an object out there. But actually there's no object out there. Just replace the word object with the word experience and then you're all set. Yeah. So every object is an experience. Uh, whether it's an animate object or inanimate, it doesn't matter. It's an experience. So all we experience is sensations. That's it. Find sensations that we call mind. And then we can kind of conceptualize that as the intellect and ego. And then dense fluctuations, which we call body and the physical world. So a rock is a modified experience of consciousness experiencing itself as the rock. A person is a changing fluctuation of consciousness perceptually from fertilized egg to ovum, I mean, to zygote, to embryo, to baby, to toddler, all the way to dusty death. This is a program and the program has a code and the code is qualia. But when you give meaning to the qualia, it becomes perception, which we then reify as the physical world, objective world. So actually my body is an extension of my conditioned mind. And uh, the conditioned mind is a modification of consciousness, which is a field of possibilities. It's non-locally correlated and tangled with all experience of every species and in all organisms. So superposition of possibilities at all times. It is infinitely correlated, it's unpredictable. It is the source of attention and intention, and it is modifying itself as what humans call mind, body, and the physical world. Now, the fluctuations are not uh, reliable. Uh, they, 
they are magical lies. And so these magical lies are called Maya. Maya is the goddess of basically illusion. So Maya in the Sanskrit word is related to matter, to meter, to music, to time, to measurement. Anything that can be experienced is not real because it's a fluctuation and it's unreliable. It's, it, it tells us the earth is flat and nobody believes that. It tells us the ground is stationary, nobody believes that. It tells us that things are solid, nobody believes that anymore, even in science. So Maya leads ultimately to the play of consciousness, which is called Leela. So to what purpose? And Leela is the play of consciousness, Maya is the illusion, the magical lie. And then this the question is asked what to what purpose and the answer is we don't know consciousness by definition wants to be conscious because that's what we call consciousness it needs to have experience so it curves back within itself and it creates experience by modifying itself into knowers modes of knowing and things known which are both species and culture specific but they're all magical lies and it's all consciousness entertaining itself as the play of the universe. And even it goes further, it goes further, they say, there are metaverses, there are multiple infinite universes. And there's a phrase in the Yoga Vishishta, infinite universes come and go in the vast expanse of consciousness, like motes of dust dancing in a beam of light. So what we call experience requires three things. Um, an experiencer, a mode of experiencing, and that which is experienced. A knower, a mode of knowing, and that which is known. A seer, a process of seeing, and that which is seen or scenery. However, having said all that, it also says, the Vedanta also says, that the, the seer, the scenery, and the scenery, the seer and the scenery, are byproducts of seeing. Actually, there's only seeing. There's only the activity of seeing or the hearer and that which is heard, the sound, are byproducts of the activity called hearing. So these techniques that we have called metacognition, you focus not on the scenery, but on the activity of seeing. You become aware on the activity of seeing, and you realize that in every act of seeing, a new seer and a new scenery is born. That's a very short summary of how consciousness conceives, constructs, governs, and becomes everything that we call the metaverse. Well, I think that's a mic drop, Deepak. You just basically solved all of human wonders and quandaries there in that 15-minute segment. So we can just call it a show. What do you think? <laughs> all kidding aside, Don, you, know, you bring a very unique scientific perspective on things with your book, The Case Against Reality, Why Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes. If you could extrapolate for us, perhaps, on your perspective, just to tie it back in, in case somebody may have missed one of our earlier episodes, on the scientific perspective of consciousness, as you allude to in the book, that what we're seeing is really not the truth and that we have not evolved to see the capital T truth, but rather for fitness points and survival. Very good. Well, thank you, Jennifer. And and, and thank you, Deepak. That was a wonderful uh, summary of, of those points of view and, and a very beautiful summary. And science, I think, has been studying what you called the reification of the perceptions. Right, we we reify our perceptions of objects and space and time, and we assume that space and time are fundamental, and that physical objects like protons and neutrons and quarks and so forth are part of the fundamental furniture of the universe, 
uh, and that uh, human beings and our brains and our consciousness somehow emerge from, from all that. That's the, been the standard scientific view. The nice thing about science is <clears throat> we force ourselves to make mathematically precise predictions from our theories, and those theories can start to contradict our very intuitions that we use to create the theories. And so evolution by natural selection is one of those theories where we, we came into the theory assuming that space and time are fundamental, creatures and organisms are fundamental, and they're in a struggle for survival, and we wrote down the equations for that. And it turns out when you look at those equations, they entail that the sensory systems of all organisms were evolved not to show the truth, but to show only fitness consequences of your actions. So the probability, according to evolutionary theory, that space and time and physical objects are the fundamental reality, the probability of that is zero, pr precisely zero. Now, evolutionary theory doesn't tell us what the reality is. It just tells us that whatever the reality might be, <laughs> sensory systems of organisms were not shaped to see it. With probability zero, they were shaped to see it. So, so that aligns pretty well with what you're saying uh, from the spiritual traditions, that space and time are not fundamental. They're, they're just forms. And the way I put it is that they're just part of a user interface from an evolutionary point of view. And we get the same conclusion from physics, which, of course, physics has been for centuries the study of what happens in space and time, or more recently, what happens in space-time, when we unite space and time. But now our best theories, quantum theory and, and, and relativity theory, special in general, together tell us, uh, as various physicists now put it, that space-time is doomed. Nima Arkani Hamed, among them, is one of the more prominent voices. Space-time is doomed, and physicists are now looking for a reality beyond space-time, beyond space and time both, not just space, but beyond time as well. And uh, they, they don't have it yet. They're, they're finding interesting structures, something called the amplitudehedron, um, cosmological polytopes, associohedron, and so forth. So they're finding these interesting structures, but we don't, they don't know what it's about yet. So, so science is groping its way towards what you said, which is that what we see is just a perception. Science has reified that perception when it assumed that space and time and objects are fundamental. But now we're seeing, for example, in the quantum Bayesian or cubism approach to, to physics, uh, Chris Fuchs, David Merman, and others, Rudiger Schock, they point out that every act of observation in physics is what they call an act of fact creation. Hmm. You wow. create what you see in the moment, which is exactly what I say in my book, according to evolution, that we create what we see uh, in our perceptions. And so science is moving. Most, most scientists are still physicalists because, because even most spiritual people in our heart of hearts, most of us by the reification, right? That's just sort of built into us. It, it takes a lot of spiritual training and meditation to begin to free yourself from that addiction to the, the reification. And so, so science is moving that in, in that direction. So I, I see a convergence. So Jennifer, as we were speaking, you know, this arrived in my mail yesterday, the new scientist, the latest issue. It says, do we create space 
time, a new way to think about the fabric of reality. This is the latest issue of the New Scientist, and I know, Don, you've spoken at the New Scientist headquarters yes. in England after your book. But then I started to read the article. It's by Amanda Gefter, who's a very gifted science writer. Yes. She was at um, one of our conferences, Sages and Scientists. You were there as well. And she wrote an extraordinary book inspired by John Wheeler. And, you know, because John Wheeler says the boundary of a boundary uh, is not a boundary. Yeah, and that uh, the boundary of a boundary is limitless. And she uses that in, in her entire book. But now she has this article, and obviously it says a lot of the things that you're talking about, including quantum Bayesianism. But, you know, as I read this and as read everything else about even do we create space-time, it does not define who the we is, you know. And the we, you and I would say, is a conscious agent. But she, along with everybody else, the we is a conscious observer that's an embodied person. But what you and I are saying is even the person is a process in the conscious agent, along with the brain and everything else. Would you agree on that? That's right. I would say that the bodies that we're perceiving right now are simply avatars in a virtual reality that, that we're creating through consciousness. And, and I think that eventually... Science has the tools to do this rigorously. And I think science will eventually take the ideas that you just so nicely and clearly presented at the very start of this conversation and turn them as, as much as possible into mathematically rigorous ideas. I think that that's, that's in the cards. Um, and perhaps substantial work will be done in our lifetime in, in that direction. Science has the tools to, to start to write down mathematical models of consciousness. Now, I should say my own view about mathematical models in science and their limits. Um, my, my own view is that Gödel's incompleteness theorem entails that there's an infinity of mathematical truths and no finite set of axioms of a theory can ever get anywhere near being able to prove all those truths. Mm -hmm. So no scientific theory can ever capture all of the truth by a long shot. In, in fact, quite the opposite. Every scientific theory will only scratch the surface. And that's, that's in principle because no theory can ever explain. There is no theory of everything. No theory can explain everything. Every scientific theory makes assumptions. And those assumptions are the miracles of the theory. Those are the things that the, the theory explicitly does not explain. It assumes those, those assumptions. It explains other things in terms of those. And so science can never off offer a theory of everything. And I my interpretation of Gödel's incompleteness theorem is that the, um, the range of, of mathematical truths, and therefore just truths in general, uh, is beyond anything that could be captured by a finite theory with a finite set of axioms, finite set of... So science, so science is doing something important. In spiritual traditions, they talk about using words as pointers to the truth. And I think what science can do is refine our pointers and give us far clearer pointers than, than we've ever had even in the spiritual tradition. So I, I think that's where we'll get a nice complement of, of, of activity between the spiritual and the science. The science will be able to give us much more clear pointers where the pointers tell you where they stop. See, that's the neat thing. 
when the pointer is so specific and rigorous and precise that it tells you, I go this far and no further. Like evolution by natural selection says, uh, you don't see the truth, but I can't tell you what the truth is. Physics now tells us space-time is doomed, is not fundamental, but I can't tell you what is fundamental. But it does tell us where it stops. And so we're going to get this nice, I think, dialogue between science and spirituality where the rigor of science, without the hubris, that we could have a theory of everything. right? We'll have to let go of that hubris, and I think Gödel sort of gave us the warning sign that we can't be hubristic about this. It's always going to be a very modest uh, next step. But that makes sense in which... As you say, if consciousness is fundamental and it's the formless that's fundamental, consciousness is exploring all the varieties of form, and that's an endless exploration. And that's effectively what we're part of right now. We're part of that exploration. And what's very interesting to me is hints that could explain why we see things like time and, and entropy. So, so, for example, if I have, we, we have a model of consciousness that we call a theory of conscious agents. In that model, it's possible for us to have these conscious agents in a dynamics that has no entropy. No, no, no I'm sorry, no change, no, no increase in entropy, right? So the entropy is just fixed. That means there's no entropic time. These, this model of consciousness is timeless in the sense that there is no increase in entropy and therefore no entropic time. But what's very interesting is if consciousness wants to understand itself, one way it could do that is to take a perspective, a projection of itself. So look at itself from a particular projection. And you can prove, very, very, it's very, very simple. It's a three-line proof that once you take a perspective, even though the original system has no entropic time, the perspective system does. The very act of taking a perspective, you can prove very, very simply, leads to that system appearing to have increasing entropy from that point of view. So this is going to be, again, a very fascinating direction to, to, to pursue. Now, I think that my, the model that we have of consciousness is just the 1.0 model, right? There'll be a 2.0, a 10.0, a 1,000.0, and, and so forth. Um, science will, will, will go on. But even our first baby models are already suggesting this interesting possibility that consciousness itself need not have entropic time, but any perspective on it will lead to an entropic time and therefore lead to all the things that we have to do to deal with decay, like evolution by natural selection, feeding ourselves, grooming ourselves, all the stuff that we have to do um, in this, this virtual reality is because projection leads to entropy. I'm sure Jennifer has some questions, but I have two, but maybe Jennifer, you have some comments before that. I have a question, Deepak, that ties into your most recent book on total meditation uh, before, of course, your upcoming book, Abundance. On total meditation, you spend a lot of time talking about the power of meditation and moving into these altered states of consciousness to connect to consciousness itself, as we were talking about earlier, both from the scientific and the Vedantic perspective. My question to both of you, whichever one of you would like to answer it first, is could consciousness in meditation, perhaps, if you hit a perfect, pure state of consciousness, solve the problem of consciousness if you hit a frequency of that level of purity, whether it's a mathematical formula, you know, Einstein and many of the famous scientists of the past have explored a lot of these altered states to come up with some of these theories of consciousness and different other theories of evolution. Is that a possibility that we could actually solve this problem using consciousness itself through perhaps even meditation? 
So let me answer that indirectly, probably, because um, I have a very rigorous practice of meditation several hours sometimes. I also meditate on uh, personal death uh, every night um, by letting go of every experience I've had, saying it's already gone, so it's dead. Uh, letting go of every memory, every thought, consciously, so it's gone. Then I do something called yoga nidra, and that is a combination of techniques, but basically progressively shut out my experiences of the sensory world. So as soon as I close my eyes, the physical world has disappeared. All you're experiencing when you're closing your eyes, the experience of the physical world has disappeared. Even the experience of the physical body disappears because I experience when I withdraw the senses, and this is a technique called Pratyahara in part of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. So you progressively withdraw each sense. As you withdraw visual experience, the physical form has disappeared, even your own body. All you experience is sounds, if you're aware of them, then you experience sensations in your body. And then you, of course, experience thoughts. And you also experience images, imagination. You know, I think of my mother and suddenly the, her form appears or a memory appears or even the sound of her voice appears. But as I withdraw from each of these at night and get to a state where I can honestly say I experience myself as existing but with no body and no mind, absolutely. And there's the certainty of existence minus experience, but with the potential of experience. Okay, so can that is... That? Can you go into inquiry when you're in that state, Deepak? So if you're in that state of no body, no physical form, no mind, is then you asking the question, you going back into the mind, or could you come from a state of pure consciousness to then go into inquiry in that state? No, you start with inquiry. So I start with inquiry. Who am I? Am I the changing body or am I the awareness in which the changing body is an experience? Am okay. I the changing mind or am I the awareness in which the changing mind is an experience? Am I emotions or am I the awareness in which the changing emotions is an experience? Am I a thought or is Am I the awareness in which thoughts come and go? And the more I inquire into that, it's obvious that there's a non-changing factor in every experience, which we call I. So I was a baby, I was a child, I was a teenager. I had these thoughts and, and I had the emotions of an eight-year-old and then I evolved. Otherwise, I could have run for president. So all of those things come as a part of inquiry. And then what I do is I start to slowly withdraw the senses and then use uh, subtle uh, techniques like uh, soundless mantras and that transcend all experience to the source of all experience. And when you start transcend all experience, you realize that all the experience is just that, sensory perceptions, images, imagination, feelings, which how I interpret my images and my sensory experience is emotions and thoughts. And that's the sum total of all experience. Now, when, when, when Don was speaking, I did have one interesting thought. And that is, you know, when Don speaks about equations and Gödel's theorem, 
he's not talking about anything in the realm of sensory experience at all. So, you know, when we do normal science, there's a word called scientific realism, or it's also called naive realism. Naive realism holds that the physical world exists exactly like it looks to human beings, period. And that it would continue to exist exactly what it looks like to human beings, even if human beings were not there. So that, you know, when you look at that, it's silly, actually, but it works. It works to create technology. It works to create everything. And quantum mechanics goes even further. But then even in quantum mechanics, there are aspects of realism, the particles that appear. You know, I, the, the, I was looking at the other day, the definition of elementary uh, particles, this the impermanent appearance of energetic particles as determined by the uncertainty principle. So even when we look at particle physics, you know, you say, is it a wave? In which case it's not material. It's a possibility. Is it a particle? Well, it's a thing. And it's what, what we call a thing is the reification of actually an idea. You know, when you look at a Higgs boson or you look at whatever, you know, these particles and subatomic particles, you still have to look at them. You take a, you freeze frame in the Hadron Collider, the appearance of something, it's a flicker of something, call it the Higgs boson, and you say, oh, this gives mass to the universe, and the equations work out. But in general, I think if you go a little bit beyond quantum mechanics into the equations that Don is speaking about, Equations are both ways, you know, so there's no arrow of time at that level. And, you know, entropy can stop when you go to briefly, when you have the experience of transcendence or bodiless existence. But I think the counter to entropy and the arrow of time is what we call life. You know, so all the time there's entropy happening, but there's also life emerging. I don't want to use esoteric terms like reincarnation, but what consciousness is doing is recycling experience through memory and imagination, but the memory and imagination don't exist as physical entities. They exist as, uh, as movements of consciousness that reify the perceptions as the physical body, the physical brain, the physical universe. And so there's this by dance going on. Now, to finish this, the other day I was speaking to Frank Wilczek, Nobel laureate in physics from MIT, and he's written a book called Fundamentals. And then in the book Fundamentals, he has a chapter on the real fundamentals. <laughs> so on the real fundamentals, you like this, Don. He says the real fundamentals of the universe are three things, spin, charge and mass. Hmm. And then he goes on to say that these are structureless entities. They don't have any dimensionality in space-time. So I said, where do they exist? He said, don't ask me those questions. They <laughs> exist, but there's no location for spin, charge, and mass. They're just, they're just activities of something that is formless and yet structures the whole universe. So what is real, really? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves. If if what you just said are the building blocks and the fundamentals of reality, and yet those things don't have a place in time, then that leaves us all just wondering, what is this thing that we call reality? So Don, any closing thoughts for you today? 
I'll, I'll just say that I agree also with, with Deepak. Uh, consciousness is fundamental, and consciousness can know itself by being itself. The notion of inquiry, it, from a scientist's point of view, when we say inquiry, we, we, I think about making theories. And what Gödel is telling us is that there's no end to making theories. The notion of truth transcends the notion of proof. So by being conscious and being conscious aware, we're, we're being that truth. That doesn't mean that we can know it in the sense that science likes to know things, right? In the sense of building theories. You, you can know it by being it, but you can't know it by theorizing. Or, or to put it another way, science will forever, it, it's job security. We will forever be coming up with new theories because there's no end to it. So this is good news for scientists. We have job security here, but it's also good news for consciousness. What, what is consciousness up to? In principle, there's no end to the inquiry mm. of self-awareness in principle. So that, you know, if, if, if we ask what is consciousness up to, you might say, well, if it's exploring itself, it'll be done. No, it, it, in principle, you can never be done because you can never know yourself completely. So that's the interesting thing. Consciousness will always be exploring. And, and what we're doing here is just a tiny little part of that grand exploration. Beautiful, Don. Closing thoughts from you, Deepak? No, I think um, uh, what's real is the formless. And being formless, it has to be infinite. So the Vedanta says, if you can see it, touch it, taste it, smell it, think about it, conceptualize it, and imagine it, it's not real. It's based on something that is totally non-conceptualizable. But without it, there would be no concepts, no imagination, no perception. So the truth, whatever it is, cannot be expressed in words. Perhaps in mathematical symbols, we can get closer. Thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of Regarding Consciousness with Jennifer K. Hill. We would love it if you would take a moment and write a review for us or rate us on Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And if you'd like to stay in touch and find out about upcoming events with some of the amazing guests we've had on the show, like Deepak Chopra and other world thought leaders, feel free to join my email list at metabizics, M-E-T-A-B-I-Z-I-C-S, Dot com. Again, that's metabizics.com. And you can go ahead and join our email list there. Thanks so much. And we look forward to having you join us next week.